0: This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. My guest today is Rosemary Morrow. For nearly 40 years, Rosemary's work as a teacher has brought permaculture directly into the lives of her thousands of students. As an author, through her books, she has touched innumerably more. As her students became teachers and other teachers used her works in their classes, her ideas and methods continue to ripple through the world and reach evermore. With this reach, Rosemary has touched my own life first as a student through her book Earth User's Guide to Permaculture and later as an instructor when I used that title as one of the student texts in my permaculture design courses and referring to the companion Earth User's Guide to Teaching Permaculture to ensure that I properly covered the complete curriculum. Now we celebrate Roe's newest book, from Meliodora Publishing, Earth Restorer's Guide to Permaculture, with a series of conversations covering her thoughts on the breadth of permaculture, as a series of ideas, as a practice, and as a way of living, interwoven with stories from throughout her journey. I wouldn't have been able to record this series with Roe if not for the project partners, Permaculture Principles, Meliodora Publishing, and Abundant Earth Foundation. Though I knew quite a bit about Roe through her writings, I didn't know a lot about her early life, how she came to permaculture, or what her career was like as a teacher and author. We begin where so many interviews do on the Permaculture podcast, with a conversation about her biography and background, which includes insights into the development and growth of permaculture over the years, the kind of character and teacher Bill Mollison was, and how Roe reframes permaculture education into a local, lived experience, whether she's teaching in Australia, Vietnam, or Cambodia. Enjoy this time with Rosemary Morrow, and I'll join you again after.
1: It's been a long and adventurous journey all the way. When I think about how it started, I think it started because of an enormous love for earth and living things, And I don't know where this comes from. I don't think it was taught by parents who took me on bushwalks, so we always had lots of bush picnics. So I was in Western Australia. Hot, dry summers, cold, wet winters, absolute freedom for kids. So every family is four, five, and six, and the principle was don't come inside. Inside is no place for children. Outside, everyone, all out, go and play. And a hand would come out with an enormous tray of sandwiches at lunchtime. So that meant that you had absolute open ability to do anything you liked. So you could go to the creek and build dams, you could catch yabbies, you could play until it was time to go home, and you'd go home filthy and tired. And, of course, what were you doing? Nothing. And who were you with? No one. And do anything naughty? No I just wanted to be out there. I felt it was all happening. I knew about spider orchids. I knew about the donkey orchids. I knew about the burrows And I knew about the, the banksia trees. So there's all that sensual antennae out, picking up the environment, loving the sun, and responding to cold and feet so tough that you could stand on road turning to tar in summer. And then you'd go off to school in uniform, washed and shined and polished and teeth cleaned and everything. But there were... Two lives. And that love is still with me now. I still love looking out my window. I like the trees, the birds. I watch everything minutely. Observation was almost a strange thought for me when I did permaculture, because what else would you do but look? Also, that years of observation affects your design. So we, were from Perth, we moved from Perth to Sydney, and suddenly we were living on the harbour with the ferries and the boats and we'd take a little boat, steal one and go and row and we'd look at the Sydney Harbour sharks and tease them. We'd ride on the ferries. We were in a different East Coast climate and I loved all the wetness and greenness. Again, lots of freedom. So I guess that was happening, but something else was happening at school. What was happening was I started to love ideas. Not so much doing, though I was very active, loved sport and things, but I loved ideas, and I realised a day wasn't worth living unless you had some good ideas. And so when I came to permaculture, of course, I was going to get ideas. the same time, the back of the atlas was full of pictures of people in different countries, grass hats, bamboo huts, igloos, deer, and I would turn straight to the back of my atlas, lying on the floor, on my elbows, hands under my jaw, looking at all these pictures, everything from the Great Wall Trains, bringing in the National Wall Clip to other countries and places and shoes. And then I went to the local library and read about all these twins, children from other countries. I can't explain that. I wonder if the readers can explain theirs. Can you really explain it? It's a hard one. I want to tell you a story now about Vietnam. I had a class in Vietnam. And I said to them, look, in Australia and in the United States or North America, people have this idea of country where your ancestors have been buried for centuries probably and which you have grown up to care for and know well. And I said to these Vietnamese, what is your country? And off they went. Mine's the one with the old tree that's given 1,000 cuttings to all places. Mine is the island on the river. Mine's the other side of the river. Mine's this mountain. Ours is... Every person knew their country. And I could say to Westerners, what is your country? And they'd say, oh, my dad was Irish and my mother was French or Greek or something. But people didn't know their country. And that sense of disconnection was with me very early So one of the things about permaculture is situating yourself in your country. So towards this, I'd like to greet everyone with the sense of the words of the Gundungurra, Aboriginal people who never ever ceded this land and who occupied it for at least 30,000 years where I live without harming or polluting water, losing soil, reducing biodiversity, and they were some of the healthiest people on earth and happiest I think from what i read so the words are watamai nalawa mitigai which it means to all of you listening today please come in sit down and we can talk so i now live on gandangara country i have a sign same as gandangara country it's never ceded and i am trying to become in relationship with that country, to know the birds, know the seasons, know the night animals, know the insects, know the soils, know where the big clouds come over the mountains and what sort of rain, and be conscious that you can't live in a country without knowing the natural parts. I'll quickly zip through my younger years. I then got unhappy at home, so i threw my school uniform in the corner of some toilets in Sydney and picked up my school case and went 4,000 kilometres away to a place called the Kimberleves, where the farms are a million acres. And it's 80 miles to your next-door neighbour, 110 miles the nearest town. At that stage, there was no internet, no phones. We had a flying doctor service with sort of radio. We had two lots of shopping come from Perth, came up on boats 2,000 kilometres and then in big trucks across. And I think those experiences have formed the rest of everything I've done. I quite like living tough. I don't really want to have air conditioning and like hot water, but not a lot of it. And then Sydney University was a big disappointment. It's all about how to plough the ground, and I thought we should be throwing grass seed around. And shortly after that, I did some research for a few years and then took off. So I was lucky enough to be in Paris and England. Where I belong to the world's elite, and that's a huge responsibility because I was given scholarships. So that means the rest of your life you are paying back. You can't have that without a sense of responsibility that must be reciprocal. Someone's invested in you if you get anything given to you or scholarship someone believed enough so reciprocity was a strong thing that's it briefly i would like any listeners think what is their country and do they know any language in that country and that if they're working in permaculture are they asking first what did the first peoples do when they lived here how did they use this land What was their relationship to all species on it? What must mine be? I know this is radical, but I'm thinking of what's been missing in permaculture from the 70s, and I'd like here to refer to Sarah Cuebliton, a wonderful Filipino permaculturist who's written a paper on what she's calling Principle Zero. It's about colonisation, but it's also about acknowledgement of first peoples every time. developing the relationships they developed, because with that comes awe and beauty and love and protection, I think.
0: My understanding is that you did study at the master's level and were introduced to earth care and climate change and some of those concerns that, as my understanding at the time, were more of a long horizon, but we're now in the middle of facing could you speak some about those changes and development and how you've responded to that over time?
1: Yes, I think it was doing, it was in France, that I became aware of what was called the Tiers monde. Not that I hadn't travelled to India or Thailand or known it, but suddenly there was a part of the world called the Third World, and this was everyone who basically wasn't, probably white Western, and enjoying all the fruits of colonization. And that was the third world. And of course, just in separating that, you've got that cut straight away, a division, haven't you? You've got a gulf. And I didn't get it then, but I got it years later, a bit of a slow learner, that what we're doing is getting them to be like us. They can have their costumes and dances, but actually, when it comes to organisations, schooling, accounting, buildings, be like us. Now, there were some fabulous things in those courses. And one of them was the Club of Rome had met in, I think, 1971, and had declared that global warming was starting to happen. It was due to humans acting in the environment and using too much coal. And I accepted that immediately and it became part of my permaculture when I started teaching. The next thing, I still hadn't done permaculture, it was the 70s, but climate change was with me. And then I was sent by the Open University in England, uh, Michael Young, to Lesotho for three or four years. So I was there, 74 to 79, the years of chaos in South Africa with the, pathway, the death of Steve Biko the rise of Desmond Tutu, black nationalism. But they were all coming across the border. The Kaladon River, they're coming to Lesotho. It was in Lesotho I looked at real degradation. So huge quantities of animals, degraded land, people couldn't feed themselves, trucked in from South Africa, and all the boys were exported to the mines of South Africa. The local market consisted of a few women, sitting on the ground with half a dozen tomatoes and onions. They were selling those to get rice or corn to eat. And that was a question. Why weren't they eating them? Why were they growing so little? And the whole agricultural sector, as it's known in development at that stage, was about getting Lesotho an export crop such as asparagus that they could export to South Africa and get the cash for it to buy the food back from South Africa. So it's ideas, isn't it? So this was a really gone-off-the-rails idea. And I ran into it later in Indonesia where they were telling the people in East Timor, you just grow food for us on your land and then export it to us and then we'll give you the money and then you can buy it all back again. And I realised this is the nature of an awful lot of trade and it's the poorest of the people. So there were two things I was seeing. I was seen land degradation, and I was also seeing people were being reduced to becoming more inanimate in their land and less interactive with their environment, and their food and water security was going down. Now at that time I'd traveled from Sydney to Paris pretty much overland. I'd been through Iraq and Afghanistan and Pakistan and <laughs> India and a lot of places, but this isn't a travel of. But with my interest in the country, I could never sleep. I sat on the back of that 1958 truck in the dust rolling over me and stared at the landscape. I used to do something similar 30 years later and all I can measure is degradation. I feel like David Attenborough. I have seen the world being destroyed. I've seen the forests go and the water's muddy. And in Lesotho, I saw the beginning of it. So that sensitisation was there at that moment. And then I thought, I'm going to work, but first I need to solve this problem. And agricultural science isn't going to do it. I'm not interested in food as a commodity. I'm not interested in commodity agriculture much. I'm interested in resource for the land and resource for the people, but not as a commodity, except locally to make the community work, to get the circulation of needs met. But I really think the fact that we turn Australia into a desert to send wheat to Iran, which was the origin of most of the wheat species is quite ridiculous. So I was at odds very early on with
0: world agriculture and those issues. And then was it seeking an alternative to commodity agriculture and that kind of world agriculture that led you to find permaculture? Yes, I thought
1: Agriculture science, this is just the stupidest thing that someone would ask me to ask people to grow asparagus, sell it South Africa when people have got three tomatoes and two onions and trying to buy their staple. And the boys have left and the people are illiterate and the cows are eating the country to death it's all just absurd in the sense of so ridiculous there are no words so I came back to Australia and I thought now what do I want to do I need to know how to grow food I went off to TAFE and I learned a lot about flowering plants and genetically modified but I learned a lot of skills and then I did a bit more environmental stuff sick of being always going to universities, I ended up working as a green space planner and landscape architect for the Department of Environment in Sydney. And that was a very good experience because I learned a lot about design and I also had my own business. And at that stage, I wanted to put back bush gardens and food, bush gardens and food into backyards. And I'd never heard of permaculture. And by this time, we're getting to about the mid-'80s. A very good friend of mine, still a friend today, Janice Harworth, said, "Ro, you need to do permaculture. And I said, what's that? Suspicious. Feisty. Why do I want to do permaculture? At that stage, there was the Bermuda Triangle where you sharpened razor blades by putting them in a triangle. And I wanted to deal with something that would give productive results built on evidence and knowledge, because if you really know the environment, you love it more instead of having ideas about it. So I'd acquired a bit of knowledge of environmental science and a bit of water culture and practised designing gardens, but with all of them, I wanted this food, environment thing. But after Janice said, you need to do this, and I said, no, I don't, I thought, I'm going to give it a try because I said no, and I don't want to reject any idea without really considering it and looking at the evidence. I don't want to be an automatic naysayer. I'm not doing that and I'm not doing this and I don't believe that. I want to know what I'm saying no to. I did a two-week course with Robin Francis and I sat there and I thought, this is it. This is the environment. This is people's institutions. This is horticulture. This is agriculture this is meteorology, this is entomology, this is a new economics, this is a really lovely design for communities. This critique of society is absolutely brilliant. And I just would like to point out the sheer genius of Bill and David because at that stage what they listed early in the course so we'd know what we're dealing with as global problems or world problems are those that the UN uses for planetary boundaries, which if we break them, our whole world starts to collapse. And we've broken three. I think biodiversity's gone. Oceans is very close. And to go back 50 years, and Bill and David talked about desertification, deforestation, climate change, destructive agriculture and chemicals. It was absolutely prescient and really you can only admire now the only thing they didn't have in there was the oceans and today when I'm teaching I add space because it's the playground in many cases of the rich and the indulgent, and we can't trust humans with it without careful regulation or it will fall back on us the way the oceans are only responding to what we do there's nothing yet Intimately malevolent about oceans, it's simply they respond. And so space will respond with something destructive. So when I heard that, and when I look at it again, because I'm just doing a complete review of permaculture, they were the things which, in my experience, were speaking to me. And I thought, I believe I can arrange this differently in ways that learners can come to it through depth and width and grow into it. So then I went off and tried to learn about community and non-formal education and I was hooked. I was teaching a year later.
0: So pulling from all of those resources that you found after your initial permaculture education and then going to explore different forms of education and community education and what we might think of as invisible structures, Who and what were your influences at that time and then the ones that you've encountered since then?
1: That's a huge question. I think I take a little bit from everything. I think I'm finally some sort of accretion of bits and pieces. I'm not even sure there's a core. The way I pick things up like a bird does and make them my own. In the early days, it was, and it still is, Karl Popper, who is a philosopher who said we should start with the greatest suffering and the greatest evils and greatest problems, and then when we've solved those, we keep working upward. And I don't know that I agree with that completely, but what was really interesting for me is that people have no access to a lot of information that we have. That was as true then, and it still is true. People have languages that are not translated. People are powerless either because of environment or politics or war. There are huge numbers of people. And when I hear people say, "The whole world's living in big houses, I say, "No, it's not." Or you solve air pollution by taking cars off the road. I'm sorry, but in Kashmir they burn plastic bags in winter to keep warm and cook food. There are other reasons for air pollution then. And so I realised this global approach is there, which puts me at odds, even if I'm just thinking it very often to others. So obviously the wonderful American ecologists, I think I'd read Walden, I don't know when I read Walden and I read now that American woman, Annie Dillard and an American Childhood. She starts with a frog eating an insect or a snake eating a frog. It's gruesome and it's amazing, your jaw drops. And I think American writers have been absolutely brilliant in giving that love and wonder. So there were those, there were the Australian environmentalists, there were the ceremonies and the foods that I've eaten while I've been away. There have been attitudes towards peace, towards organisations, everything from the CONSO people, 4,000 metres up in Southwest Africa to the Basutu. Because I was travelling alone with just a backpack and there was no white Land Rover, air-conditioned car or guard with a gun, I very much got taken into people's lives. So the people... I was working with, because it's very much shared, shaped me, I think, as I shaped them. So whenever I hear an absolute, I can often think, oh, no, that's not true there, it's not true here. When agroforestry started to be talked about, I realised that I'd seen lots of agroforestry in several places and could bring that in as where people practised it as part of their life for centuries. Influencers, thinkers... I like moral philosophy. I always have, and I'll read that for a hobby. I'll read any book on the environment I can get my hands on. i stare out windows. I'm interested perhaps even in what the UN is doing. I think it's planetary boundaries. It's going to have to add space. There'll be 10. I think the SDGs are worth looking at, but not adopting holus bolus. I think... What we call in Australia is a bower bird, who picks up bits of everything. And I had a little quail here once and they'd pick up leaves and pop them on their back when they were sitting down. I feel like someone who's popping little bits of everything on me. <laughs> That's all, with a backpack and a lightweight computer and just living whenever people are
0: living. When you mentioned moral philosophy, what are some of the authors and books that you love from that field?
1: Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl who was a psychiatrist who somehow lived through two concentration, Nazi concentration death camps and when he came back he wrote a book about Man's Search for Meaning and what I took away from that is ethics, very strong ethics. It's what you do when no one's watching. So he discussed the fact that in these dormitories at night and they were freezing, maybe one person would steal another person's blanket or if someone was dying, they might take their boots or socks. And he always said, it's a thing you refrain from when you're not under observation and that we need meaning in our lives and meaning in my life is given by ethics. Now, the other woman was the moral philosopher from Oxford, married to the man who wrote about the lion and the wardrobe, I think.
0: C.S. Lewis's wife?
1: I think so, yes. I think it's C.S. Lewis. Look, this isn't reliable. And the other one was the French philosopher who, during the war, she eventually joined forces with the very poor in the factories, working under horrific conditions. And then the other one is the Nuremberg Trials and where evil is banal. Because one thing, I haven't been on a travelogue of a journey. I've been through some of the most horrific scenes and watched human behaviour that's unthinkable and unimaginable as a part of this. So it hasn't been one lovely adventure. When someone says to me, I'd love to do what you do, can they imagine being in this rotten little guest house at night with a Billy April? You've got an eye infection, you think your eye will have rotted by morning, and there's no one you can contact, and no one you can go to, and just pace it all night. What happens when you find corruption in the project, and your people who have been absolutely hospitable. What's the tolerance? You're constantly up against your ethics, and you have to keep looking at not just whether you're a unified person, but... What are the ethics here and what really matters? It starts with people that all tourists do. Do you give money to a beggar? Of course you do. But some people would say, no, they've got children at Oxford or garbage. You're constantly up against yourself. In addition, your whole thinking is about how the people can have the best of what you have to share and offer. So those two things are operating together your own frailties and inabilities and meannesses and pettiness and what about me, right against the needs of the people you're with and to understand and comprehend and not be colonial, but engage them every step of the way. I remember someone saying the 10 worst countries in the world are from Man from the Lonely Planet, and I'd actually been working in eight of them. It's
0: not glamorous, but people need permaculture and really do. To go back to what you said earlier about first hearing about the third world, and I was a teenager, I think, the first time that that cropped up. And it became very clear, very quickly, similar to what you shared, that the Anglosphere and Europeans were considered the first world, and everybody else was not. And I think about commodity agriculture and African farmers in the Sahel region growing chrysanthemums, in these giant greenhouses that covered acres for export, and yet they didn't have that availability to grow their own food. Or one of the most influential books on me, Robert Rudale wrote a book called Save Three Lives. And one of the pieces that stuck with me from that is he talked about how native agriculture didn't look like agriculture. As permaculture practitioners, we would think of them as food forests but that those home gardens were what would not be burned when troops would come through, that the fields would be burned and salted and no longer be able to grow food, but those home gardens that didn't look like food or agriculture were preserved, and then the families could still eat. All of that ties into some things that you've touched on, which I was wondering if you could speak to a bit more, is that colonial nature of permaculture and that divide between places where it is accessible and taught and perhaps thought as a Western ideal versus what its transformative abilities would be if it was made more available or instructors such as yourself have done in taking it to those places where it's not glamorous.
1: Yeah, I think there are two things here. There's how you do it and what you do. I have seen enormous flower houses in Uganda and the water's polluted, and they have guards on the gate and fences around it. I don't know how they got the land. And then planes fly in and they cut the flowers out to the market in Holland, you know, the big flower market. And I've seen this repeated. I've seen Lake Malawi being fished to death, and the planes come in and take the fish away. The robbery and the degradation still continuing, the flows are from the global south to the global north, all the time of resources, even if countries are independent. And that's really unconscionable, especially when these countries for years had their own sustainable ways of living. In England, you would have lived on potatoes and onions, and the French would have added a bit of cheese by the end of winter. But I'm not sure a little stringency, frugality doesn't do us any harm anyway. We don't have to have abundance at all times. We need enough. Yes, I think I've watched all this happen for years and years and I've watched things collapse as well. So that going in, that's dreadful. Going in is a war zone. You go into somewhere. You go to Paris, but you go into Afghanistan trying to watch language. So most early permaculture was chalk and talk or sage on the stage and someone come along and sit in a chair and do drawings. Bill was a natural raconteur. Absolutely superb. Hold you riveted with stories and drawings and unlikely things and outrageous statements. But there's only one like that every now and again. And they are wonderful teachers. They don't always involve you and they often put you down if you ask a question. you Yes. Prescient. Outstandingly and I miss him very much because I've got questions to ask him. But what I realise is that we cannot teach the same way when we're in these other places. So how do we teach? First of all, we work with a local organisation and a certain critical mass. Then we give people a trial. Is this what they want? Are they interested? Would it make sense? If they do, they select the place, they select the translator. They send the people you don't. They work out their ways. They either invite people or something. And so hand over to them all the logistics. The other thing is the local people must be three quarters of that class. You can't just have people coming in from everywhere because they disperse and you can't get to critical mass for them to talk. Thirdly, let people make it their own. So if you're talking about, say, a kitchen garden, for example, instead of saying do it like this, the lemon tree at the back door, you say how do you grow your vegetables? When you're in Cambodia, you find that they don't grow many traditionally because they had forests and they chose leaves off trees and perennials, which is our dream and we haven't got there, mainly for their vegetables and used papaya and Mango, green, and cooked in various ways. And lots of reasons for this the extremely hot, wet summers where the fungus takes cat kills cabbages and lettuces, the huge torrential rains in the wet season. Obviously, you want a perennial system. So, how would you do it? But if you want to pick it every day and have it in soups and things, how would you do it? You find there are no salads because most of the water is polluted. So, you have soups every day cooked freshly. And to bulk up liquids, it's a matter of learning as you go, keeping the principles, the design principles there. But as you go, reinforcing, I go to a class and say, I want everyone to divide into groups of three, please, if you don't mind, just divide off, don't divide people, maximum autonomy in the class. Now, if you don't mind, would you please list the 10 easiest vegetables to grow? Done that. Good. Now form groups of six and decide which of those 10 are the most important. At the end, you've got consensus. Then we talk about the seed and the season, keeping it safe, protection, how it's propagated whether it, all the varieties. We could have had 600 varieties of bananas in Vietnam, but we stopped them. I don't know how many varieties of mangoes and certainly of citrus, but varieties of wheat with the Iraqis. And the Rohingya recently, when we we're doing trees, list all the trees, now list all their uses and products. Because imagine if I told them there's tropical mahogany and there's tropical cedar. God, I'd be finished. I don't know. But building their knowledge collectively, the group's knowledge collectively. Is really important. The class listed together, I think, 80 or 90 trees and then came close to 500 uses. So that's ethnobotany. And then we talk about where you plant them, where you place them, if you've got bear land, what is the use. But really it's bringing to consciousness knowledge in a pattern of design. I really think that's what it is. But I'm still teaching pretty straight permaculture And I'm keen on people sticking to the curriculum because it's very good. And zoning is a very useful concept. It is actually useful to people to think. In a refugee camp, if they know they're going to be there for some years, and most people are 12 to 20 years in a camp if they get country of third settlement, what can they use there? But, look, part of it is not altogether use, Scott. It is use, but it's also function. What's it doing for you and the environment? So I don't think there's anything that doesn't have a use that I've found, but I know if I walk into a eucalypt forest not far from my back door, I'd be struggling to find more than three or four yields and products. I can talk about the functions very clearly, but when it comes to use and products, I'm fairly illiterate, and so would any group of Australians be. It's not you don't love it or know it or appreciate it or the flowers or understand the botany. It's just the ethnobotany isn't there, the functions as well as uses and yields. And so I think there have been permaculture teachers who arrive in those situations and try to dictate from a course they had somewhere. I was in Vietnam after a terrible drought and this was a women's course in the center provinces the women arrived and they were thin as a toothpick. Really, they were so skinny. They had bare feet and they looked worn. We let them sleep for two days and have two days of good meals and they just collapsed. And then we started talking about what did you do in the drought to have water? And I've got quite a bit of Vietnamese. I don't speak it very well because of seven tones, but I understand it and the knowledge and the interest by each of them to come together and discuss what to do under crisis and disaster. And if there'd been another disaster, then that group would have realised from each other that knowledge sharing was embedded. And we did lots of other things. We did design work and things. But just knowing that people often arrive hungry in refugee camps, I'll get someone to start the class and I'll get the baker and I'll buy two loaves of bread and a big pile of something, go on it and bring it back, and at morning tea it will just go. So people will often ignore that people are hungry. I'm raving a bit, but there are all sorts of sensitivities for people to be able to learn well, and one is really using their own information, and what permaculture does, it puts it into a framework Or a jigsaw. So what they know falls into place intuitively, and by culture falls into place consciously that they can use again.
0: Which reminds me of something that David said to me once after an interview. It's something that I still wish I had gotten in a recording, was that this idea of permaculture is something that is applicable to who we are and where we are and what we do. And so that it's not really about one concept of permaculture, but a series of permacultures that arise from what it is that we know and what we do and the place that we as an individual come from and also like our context within our community. And that even though we might teach the PDC as a core recognized curriculum, that the way that gets applied in someone's life will vary widely depending on everything that they are as a person.
1: Yes, I think so. In the global South, people are inclined to go out and do it in five minutes. Okay, give me that seed, I'm going to grow it and I'm going to see what happens if I soak it overnight or I'm going to see what happens if I do a viability test on the seed I bought from the seed merchant and I found, report next day, 50% of the seed were dead and that sort of thing. With Westerners, they say, I think about it, I don't know if I'm ready or I don't know enough and that is because need isn't at their ankles chasing them, where they really have to do something about need, about hunger, even about having something to do to deal with uncertainty or stress. There are lots of reasons for doing permaculture, but I'm a firm believer in a skeleton curriculum that builds knowledge deeper and wider. So although it's localised, I don't dumb it down because most of the classes are literate. Though I disagree with people who say you all need to draw like a landscape architect. No, I don't care if you draw a great big purple pig because you've never learnt to draw and beside it you put a yellow coconut tree and I say, tell me about that. And the importance of that in the design has to be cared for. Is the representation is true to that importance of those things in their lives, economically, physically, and otherwise. So it's about the representation as well, and it's about the skeleton being there that's useful for people and relevant that they can take it with refugees. will they take it when they're living under bridges in Paris? will they take it? if they're in a warehouse in London, will they take it if they go home, they can stay and use it in camps so. The portability and relevance of knowledge, I think, is critical. So if you just talk to one place, I think you do people a disservice. The universality is there as well.
0: And that was Rosemary Morrow. You can find her books, including the latest Earth Restorer's Guide to Permaculture, at the permacultureprinciples.com store. As we close this conversation and prepare for the others which will follow, I'd like to re-extend the invitation for you to consider Rose's questions. What is your country? Do you speak a language from there? Do you know how the indigenous peoples lived on that land? While you take the time to answer those and consider the others that arise from doing so, make sure that you spend each day taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.